0: Between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so, uh, many have said that this is one of the first clear, um, plain prophecies talking about the Mashiach. And the first prophecy is that it will be a seed of the woman, okay, in order to defeat the serpent and to crush his head, okay? Uh, so, really, even here from Genesis, we have not only prophecies of the Mashiach, but we also have prophecies that he will become flesh through the seed of the woman. Uh, this continues, of course, throughout um, all of Genesis with several of the patriarchs. In Genesis 15:18, 18, uh, it says that God is speaking to Abraham, and he's making a covenant with Abraham. And he says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, uh, the river Euphrates. Um, now, even this translation says descendants. However, the Hebrew and Rav Shaul, Paul, makes a big point out of this that actually it's singular in this verse, your seed, not seeds, but seed. Uh, again, uh, to refer to, in context, you could think, take it to mean descendants, but it's kind of both, but specifically talking about the seed of the Messiah, okay, which would come through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob, okay? And, of course, Isaac's birth being a miraculous birth because uh, Sarah was old, and so was Abraham. So it says in Genesis 21, Then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, and at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Uh, And so Isaac's was a miraculous birth, being uh, when both of them were well on in age, but God had promised that it would happen. And so it's not just, uh, these aren't just separate miraculous birth stories in a sense. These are a continuous line of, of birth stories, all leading to the Messiah, right? From the seed of the woman, through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. Uh, also, uh, there's another important one who uh, is not in the line of the Messiah, but who is equally important and rep- and, and a huge representative of the Messiah, which is Moshe, Moses, and, and the miraculous... Uh, his miraculous birth. So in Exodus 2, verses 1 to 3, it says this. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him in a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch, and she put the child into it and set it among the reeds on the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Now, will put that one in context... Uh, Pharaoh, if you remember, had decreed that all of the male children would be thrown into the Nile to drown uh and and so this is a miraculous uh saving of Moses uh so that he would survive instead of being thrown into the Nile river uh, i I also think that in our day in these last days, this is a good example of um there are a lot of miraculous bursts that we don't even appreciate even now uh because just as the pharaoh uh, was casting all the the boys into the Nile. And then later you have, uh, in Yeshua's day, when King Herod tried to kill Yeshua and ended up killing many of the young boys, that today we have the scourge of abortion, uh, that in these last days that God has a purpose for different people at different times, and the adversary is trying to kill them before they're even born. Uh, So this this is really important to see the, the... the power of these miraculous births, how important it is, okay? Um, And then, of course, uh, it's also prophesied in Isaiah. And um, what's important in Isaiah uh, is that Isaiah connects things that are less obvious um, in the previous passages, Uh, because Isaiah helps us to see that it's not just that the Mashiach Uh, would be born of the seed of the woman and so on, it helps us to see that the Messiah is also the Son of God. Uh, So in Isaiah 7, verses 14 to 16, it says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse the evil and the good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Um, Now we'll come back to this a little bit later, but uh, for the Jews, when they look at these prophecies, they have a hard time wanting to see Yeshua in these prophecies. But there's a couple things that are important here. One, prophecies always have something that is true within a very near time period in order to validate what will happen in a far time period. Does that make sense? So all of these prophets, if you could try to put yourself in a position where you're listening to these prophets speak the word of God, how do you know? How do you believe them? How do you trust them? Well, what they would have to do is just write it down and keep it and wait for God to fulfill enough things that they could say, yes, this was truly a man of God, and often this would happen long after those prophets were already dead. Uh, many of those prophets were even murdered and killed by their contemporaries because they didn't want to hear those words. So, uh, so here the validation that this is not just a prophecy at the time, but also in the future, was the idea that this woman would have a miraculous birth. And uh, I could go into some details here of why Jews tried to reject Yeshua in this because it doesn't act, it doesn't say virgin in the Hebrew quite the same way. But there's a lot of Jewish Targum translations from before Yeshua where they did translate using the word virgin. So it was a common Jewish interpretation in classical Judaism to understand this to mean virgin, uh, even though the Hebrew doesn't specifically say it. So, but they also had keys at the time to show that we would know God is with us. This miraculous birth would point to someone who would be God with us now. Even though that one alone might not support it, Isaiah very shortly later in Isaiah 9 says something that is even more clear. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, and from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So a child who is born, who will have the government that will never end, okay, the rulership, the kingship that will never end. And and that clearly speaks of not just a miraculous birth, but also of the Son of God being the Mashiach. Okay, this one's really key. Uh, to really understanding that God himself will do these things through his son. And because he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, that the Mashiach is not just another man. The Mashiach will be the son of God. Uh, This is is all really core to believing that Yeshua is the Messiah. Uh, I I really want to highlight this, this, this kind of... For us as believers, this is kind of one of those teachings that we've all heard so many times that he's the son of God, he's the Messiah. But this gets attacked, and so it's really important to see that this is this is critical to our belief in his, and his in Yeshua as the Messiah. We can't separate this. In some sense, if he's not from God, he's not the Messiah. Okay, so um, so to highlight that, um, I want to now go to the brief quotation of the New Testament. And, um, Matthew one and Luke in the beginning of Luke all talk about the story of Yeshua and talk about it with enough detail of his birth to really help you to understand not just the miraculous part of it, but that it, it fits all of the prophecies. Okay. For instance, in Isaiah, we talked about how he is from the line of David. He has to be the seed of the woman has to come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has to come through David, which we didn't talk about that prophecy, but it's in there. Uh, and and Isaiah confirmed that the one who, this child who would be born in the government, would be put on his shoulders, would sit on the throne of David, which meant that he had to be a descendant of David. You don't just get the throne of David if you're not a descendant. And so in Matthew 1, it gives us a genealogy to show that he's descended through David. Luke also gives us a genealogy. They're not the same genealogies. There's some details about them that are a little bit murky. The question being, one of the genealogies is likely Mary. One of the genealogies is likely Joseph, who was thought to be his father. But, of course, as the story goes, uh, God himself was actually his father. So what I want to do, I'm not going to spend much time in Matthew today, uh, but Matthew talks about some of these important things. Luke goes through an incredibly detailed account of Yeshua's birth and many of the things around it that are all really important, and I want to highlight some of these. So, uh, starting in Luke 1.26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to be a man whose name was Yosef, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus or Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child will be called, shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So all of the details are there. All of the things that I just said about what these prophecies lined up. The angel mentions them. Uh, Mary understands them. Uh, so so all of them line up that this, this is not just a, a one thing time thing this is not just one miracle that's happening this is a fulfillment of many prophecies all coming together at the same time in god uh putting his seed into mary so that now it's the seed of the woman and it's also god's seed um, in the son of man okay also luke tells an interesting story about uh yeshua when he was 12 So Luke 2.41 says this. Now his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Yeshua stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Yeshua kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Uh, So he's 12 years old. He already has wisdom and understanding and, and can speak life from the scriptures and this actually very much lines up with Isaiah 7 that we just said that when he is old enough to reject the good and to choose, or to reject the bad and to choose the good. And it's interesting because one of the questions that I had pondered and I'd heard people discuss at times is well he's the son of God so of course, of course he was perfect, right? Or how did he know as he was growing up how much did he know? You know, when we're born, you we know nothing we gradually learn things as we grow up and that's the sum of what we know and understand is what we've learned in our lives and and it begs this and people would beg this question of what did what did Yeshua know did he grow up as a child and have to learn things or did he somehow bring everything with him that he knew beforehand into his human life and i contend that it's a bit of both but that he had to have experienced humanity the way we experience humanity, if that makes sense. And so, even at age 12, um, it's just like what Isaiah says—that when he's old enough to reject the bad and to choose the good, right? So, so there were things that he had to learn, things that he had to go through, and and he had to experience this learning process the same way we do as humans. And and Isaiah says that in other places that we'll come back to, but I think it's key to, to, to think about that. That that Yeshua experienced what we experience. It wasn't like he was this three year old godhead walking around, <laughs> you know. He was he was a, a in many ways a typical young boy growing up. Um but but grew in wisdom and was able to once he learned that to, to avoid the bad and to choose the good. Okay. Now, um, there's a few other things that become really critical to to appreciating that he's the Son of God. It's not just the miraculous birth of another human, but he's the Son of God. In Luke 4, it says this. He's in his ministry, and he's starting to cast out demons. It says, while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many shouting, you are the son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Messiah. So even though we, there's a veil, right? In the, in the garden, there was a, a blade of fire, a sword of fire that separated us from the garden of Eden. So there's, there's a barrier between us and the heavens that we can't appreciate. But the demons are on the other side of that. Right? So when they see him, they know he's the son of God. The demons are testifying that he's the son of God. Now why does Yeshua tell them not to? He has his own reasons. Yeshua spent a lot of the time in his early ministry trying to actually discourage people from saying some of these things like that. I'm guessing because there's so many people waiting for the Messiah that there are certain things that he had to accomplish that would be more difficult to accomplish every time he had thousands of people dragging at his heels. But Still, he did many of these miraculous things uh, and and here, even the demons testified that he was the Son of God. This becomes really important even with when we talk about uh, how it's attacked that he's the Son of God uh, even in the messianic movement today uh, we kind of a lot of the messianic movement has come about because of rejecting Christian traditions but also to some degree avoiding some Jewish traditions not all but some that have been anti-yeshua okay and what's bad about that is that for many of us we're rebels without a cause and once we find this cause somehow we we don't stop being rebels <laughs> and so yeah we're so it's it's kind of funny that way but uh what that means is is that there are some things that, that have come about in the Messianic movement where people question things that are very strongly scriptural, very strongly in support of Yeshua, and we have a hard time with that. Uh, so so one of them is that there are people that try to debate, what does this mean that Yeshua is God? Um, did he really say he's God? Is Is he equal to God? And I'm not going to answer all those questions today. I think The idea that he's equal to God, that he's the son of God, um, are all really important questions. Um, I will say this. The traditional Trinitarian theology um, is is not um, necessarily right out of the scripture. The fact that he's the son of God, that he is God, uh, but to say that he's equal with God is something that is a difficult question. What does that even mean? And so uh, the point is, we want to try to stick with the things that we know the Scripture says very clearly. He's the Son of God, that He was definitely pre-incarnate, uh, that He definitely existed in the heavens uh, before He became man. Uh, and it's difficult to say too much beyond that. Let's stick with the things that we can know and say for sure that are tied with the Scripture. And and this is really important because we, we, there's these arguments I've even heard Messianics say but Yeshua never said of himself that he was God. Except that right here he's trying to tell the demon to stop saying that he's the Son of God. So the fact that Yeshua didn't say of himself that he was the Son of God doesn't mean that he wasn't. doesn't mean that he didn't believe that he was. It just meant that he had his own purposes for what he did and didn't say uh, during his ministry. Uh, And and thats it's difficult for us to comprehend and put ourselves in his shoes per se and appreciate why he did or didn't do certain things. But he was the Son of God. He knew he was the Son of God. And and there's plenty of testimony to say that. And that's really important to see that as the foundation of our belief. Okay, We can't have him be the Messiah if he's not the Son of God. So, um, even in Philippians... Uh, there are some people who believe that here in Philippians that this kind of became a creed or a confession in Philippians 2 that really tries to lay these things out of when you become a believer and you confess to the faith in Yeshua, what does that mean? So here in 2nd in Philippians it says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. So um, so Yeshua did not try to hold on to or reach for equality with God, but he was in the form of God, and also became in the likeness of men, certainly too many things that are too hard for us to understand but here's here's what I have found for us as humans and I'll get into this a little more uh, kind of towards the end as humans, we tend to attribute meaning to facts it it helps us to try to understand the world better, okay we tend to attribute meaning to facts and the, the, that's a good thing because it helps us to have a reason to hold on to these facts, okay? The downside is that it can mean that we can start to hold on to the meaning more than hold on to the facts, and we can drift and get away from the facts. What What I'm getting at here is that the way that the, testimony, the scripture testifies to us about these facts is that they're facts. The fact is he's the Son of God. The fact is, he was he was miraculously born to a virgin. What does that mean? What does it mean that he? Uh, John certainly try does a lot to try to attribute meaning in the Gospel of John. The whole Gospel is a lot more about meaning. Um, and here in Philippians, this is a confession that adds some meaning to why what these things are. What did Yeshua do and why? Um, but but always go back to these facts. Okay, the facts are rocks that you can hold on to. Like Yeshua said, uh, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to hit at today, is less about the meaning. What does it mean that he was the Son of God? And just trying to hit home the fact he was the Son of God. Um, some of the... Um, even historians, when they try to look back and say, did Yeshua even live? Okay? Um let me I guess let me go ahead and move into talking a little bit more about the opposition here. Um I was going to talk a little bit about uh 1 John and 2 John where it says that uh that you any when you test the spirits you any demon or any spirit that does not confess that Yeshua came in the flesh is not sent from God. So again, we could talk about how this is one of those facts that it's hard for us to see past the veil. But it's a fact. It's a fact that, that all of heaven and earth really knows that he's the Son of God. So, when it comes to opposition to this, every religion, every non religion, wherever you could say, uh, has some form of opposition to this, okay, of Yeshua being the Son of God. And, and that's really important to see because whatever is important gets attacked right? So it's something we have to hold on to. We have to hold on to the idea that he became flesh. We have to hold on to the idea that he became man. And when it comes to the scriptures, uh, from a historical perspective, from a literary perspective, historians want to just say, well, these are made-up stories. It was just something that uh, got fanaticized, and you just had a lot of people follow along with it. But But that is an immediately biased viewpoint, because uh, have you ever heard of Plato? Anybody ever heard of Socrates? Anybody ever heard of Caesar? Okay. When it comes to the documents of the scriptures, okay, especially the Brit Chadasha, the New Testament, they are what are called primary and secondary sources. Primary sources are Historical artifacts, literary books, whatever, that somebody's written down that they were the actual witness to the events. Okay? So primary sources are always the best in, in historical analysis because it was somebody who was there. I mean, you could, you could say that they had different things going through their mind. They might not have interpreted the events correctly. But still, whatever you say with primary sources, primary sources are always the best sources – because they were there and witnessed the events for themselves. Secondary sources are almost as good, because secondary sources are the idea of somebody witnessed it, but then somebody who knew them wrote it down. So the secondary source didn't witness the event, but they spoke to the primary source and wrote it down. Okay. Now, throughout all historical documents, probably, I don't know for sure, but I would suspect that most are, secondary sources. It's very common to have secondary sources, more secondary sources than primary sources, because usually the people that go through the events aren't the ones writing it down. Somebody else comes along later and wants to write it down. And, but when it comes to the Shah, okay, all of it is primary and secondary sources, which means regardless of, again, the meaning, regardless of interpretation of events, these were people that experienced it people that were there, or people who spoke to people that were there. And largely, for instance, we we were using the story of Luke. Uh, Luke was a primary source for some things, but a secondary source for other things. Okay, He wasn't there to experience the situation with Yeshua when he was born in those early days, but he was there throughout the whole book of Acts. Not throughout all of it, but through a lot of it. He wrote that book down too. So this is really key that when it comes to the fact that the scripture is primary sources and secondary sources. Also to the fact that there are um, thousands and thousands of copies in the Greek. Um, Also in Aramaic, and some people who believe that the the original B'rish har would have largely been in Hebrew. Uh, We don't have Hebrew copies per se, although I'm really curious now that they're opening up the Vatican in the vaults. Maybe we'll find more there, who knows. But um, the point being that both in the Greek and in Aramaic, there are thousands of copies of the Brit Hadashah, thousands. There are more copies of the Brit Hadashah going back to the closer time period of when it happened within the first and second centuries that are known to go back that far than even we have of the Tanakh. The oldest copy we have of the Tanakh in Hebrew is um, the, the Aleppo Codex, I believe. If it's not the Aleppo Codex, it's, one of, it's, it's something similar. But the oldest complete, we also have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are not complete, but those go back to uh, the first century. Uh, but the Aleppo Codex is only about 1,000 years old. So even with the Brit Hadashah, there's more records going back that far than there is of even the Tanakh. And especially more when I said Plato or Socrates or Caesar. There are some historians that even debate whether Socrates even existed. Because there literally is almost no evidence that he existed. None. No literary evidence, nothing. Even Plato, what we have of Plato, is from several centuries after Plato. And there's only a few dozen documents. I might be getting my numbers wrong, but just to put a scale on it of everybody's heard of plato but the actual historical evidence is pretty thin compared to the historical evidence here so for people to kind of just say these are made up stories if you do a an objective historical analysis these are actual people that really lived in a time that there's plenty of other historical evidence to validate some of the things that happened here like what king herod did and others uh, and thousands of documents to support it. So from that perspective, from a scientific perspective, you could say, you might not want to take it, they don't want to take it at face value, so they have to reject it. But at face value, this is one of the strongest documents there is to believe and validate some historical information. So again, rather than think about the meaning, per se, if you people don't want to think about the meaning, The facts are there. And if we can hold on to the facts, uh, it it helps us to to trust in some of the meanings that are taught to us from the Scripture. There's another, uh, there's other aspects, um, religions, that reject this. Um, Islam, especially, uh, rejects this. They want to believe that Yeshua was a healer and they even say that he was a prophet, but they reject that he was God's son by saying a simple statement. They just say, God cannot have a son. And that's it. They have no proof. They don't live by proof. Uh, there's a, there's an interesting effect of humans. Uh, there's ways that we allow ourselves to believe something when it hasn't been proven to us. Okay? We just kind of do it. Uh, There's a lot of these, I've been reading about some of these natural human effects, uh, psychological things that we do to make life easier. And they're generally good things, but they can also be bad things. One of those things is social proof, that we tend to validate something, not because we have evidence, but because other people believe it. And we use this a lot, I can tell you, when we were in Israel and we were kind of going through that culture shock stage, This is exactly what you're doing, right? You have no idea what's going on, so you're looking around, seeing what everybody else is doing. And that's the number one time that social proof is really important to us as humans where it's almost automatic Um, to where uh, the two key things are we're in a situation of uncertainty and we're looking at people around us that are similar to us to figure out what they're doing. And so if any of you ever heard about the Jonestown Massacre, where almost 1,000 people basically chose willing suicide way back when. Both of those were factors that played into that. First of all, there was uncertainty. It was a strange situation that they didn't know what to do um, because of some of the events that had happened. Uh, and second was they had relocated from California into South America, and so all of the people that were in the group, the only people that they had as a reference point were not the locals, because the locals were Spanish and local Indians and stuff like that. They couldn't communicate well with the locals, so the only people that they had a reference for was the other people in the group. So as soon as somebody in the group started doing, following the leader to do something, most of the people just automatically followed, almost like they were zombies, and it has to do with this social proof. The reason I'm bringing this up is that this is exactly how Islam works. You have a leader who says something. And simply because the leader says something, the next people start lining up, and the next people start lining up, and the next people start lining up, and they just follow right along. Now, as Messianics, we're all rebels, so we don't do this. But but we do. But the point is, they have no proof. The only proof that they have, the only proof that they need, because this is just, how they operate, is social proof. Because every other Muslim does it, they do it. Because they're Muslim. It's that simple. And the irony of all of this is they believe in an all-powerful God, they believe in a God who created the heavens and the earth, so wait, this God who created everything doesn't even have the power to have a son? I mean, on the face of it, just to say that God cannot have a son is offensive to the God who's powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth. Really? You can say he's all-powerful, but he doesn't now. I could go on and on because the God of Islam, Allah, is not the God of Israel. He's rather cantankerous, forgives sins if he feels like it, and, uh, um, and then may change his mind later anyway just for no reason. And he's definitely not a God who's merciful and not a God who really needs to save his people. It's just, it's it's a weird thing, the God of Allah. So, the fact that they say that God cannot have a son, it's a lie. It's that simple. It's a statement they make, they follow it, because they all follow the herd of what other Muslims do, and that's it. There's no evidence. Okay, there's more evidence here. Solid evidence to say that God has a son. Jews take a more interesting route, Where they say something that is absolutely true, but it becomes a straw man argument. If you don't know what a straw man argument is, a straw man argument is where we're having this conversation, but when I don't want to have this conversation because I'm going to lose, I'm going to have a slightly different conversation by putting up a straw man, and I'm going to defeat this straw man, and it's going to make it look like I won this conversation, but really I'm winning this conversation. And that's what this is. It's a straw man argument. The idea is that a man cannot become God. That's what Jews say. A man cannot become God. It's exactly right. We can't. That was the deception in the garden that the serpent said. "Of You can become like God. Well, uh, the issue here is not a man becoming God. It's God becoming man. And, and because of the veil, we can't prove the other side of it so easily. It's hard for people to see that that's what it is, but that's that's the argument that the Jews make, and so you have to turn it around. You have to say no, it's not about man becoming God; it's about God becoming man. Absolutely, he can do that. Absolutely, it's within his power and ability. Uh, and the scriptures testify it, and that's the difficult part is um, trying to take Jews back to Isaiah seven and Isaiah nine and show them, you know, your own scriptures testify this. So. I've talked a lot about why this matters, how it's critical. I want to go back to Genesis a little bit, and I want to talk about how this ties into Yeshua again, being on uh, being our sacrifice, okay? Being the Messiah. Now, in Genesis three, uh, let me see. I want to I want to read. I want to read all of this. I'm going to start in Genesis three fourteen again. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain shall you bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now listen to this verse. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin. So even right here, where you have a prophecy of the Messiah being the seed of the woman, you also have a sacrifice of an animal, which was the skin that he used to cover them. So this is is what I mean about the connection of him being the Son of God and the miraculous birth is critical. So the rest of the conversation where he died was in the grave for three days and then rose again. You can't separate the two. And again, it's hard for us to add meaning to facts. We want to add meaning to facts. Why did Yeshua come? But uh, but these are the facts that are laid out before us. And they're critical facts for us to hold on to, to believe the gospel, to believe the good news, and to live the way that God wants us to live. Um, so, it also says this in John three sixteen and 17, when it talks about how Yeshua was sent, right? That he comes from God. So, him being born was that he was sent on a mission from God. So, again, just trying to hit home, connecting his birth to him being crucified and rising again, okay? The... The one thing that I think is interesting for us, though, I want to go back to that idea of social proof, okay? The idea that when we look at other people to try to understand what we should or shouldn't do, uh, it's an important thing. It really, it, it's, it's a good thing for the most part. It's a bad thing when you're believing a lie and following a lie that everybody else is following. But it's a normal mechanism. It is so powerful that I would like to At least posit one purpose here of God sending his son. Besides dealing with all of the quote unquote legal issues of saving us, okay, of of doing what he needed to do in his ministry to uh, establish himself on the throne of David, right? Um, I think the other issue is what does it mean for us to be human? I mean, in some ways, as humans, we're better at being human than understanding what that means. (laughs) Does that make sense? We walk around and we're still human. We don't have any clue what we're doing half the time. You know, the way our our mind works, the way our processes work, we're doing a good job being human. doesn't mean we're doing a good job knowing what we're doing. So, um, the point being that Yeshua becoming human creates a very different effect for us. So Yeshua came into a system with rabbis and disciples, and this was exactly what it meant to be a disciple, was that you were supposed to do what your rabbi did. Okay, And even when you look at Orthodox Judaism today, and you think about the clothes they wear, the hats they wear, some of these really devout Orthodox Jews They do everything to the point that they tie their shoes, put on their pants, do everything, wear the same clothes as the rabbi did. No questions. If the rabbi did it, it. they did it. That's the idea. That's what it meant for Yeshua to be a rabbi and for him to have disciples. So here's the key thing. We go back to earlier where we said that what was it like for Yeshua to be human even though he was the son of God? Certainly he did things as the son of God that we couldn't do. But the fact that he was a rabbi and had disciples meant that he believed that his disciples could do what he was doing. Now, not without help. He sent a helper. There was other things that needed to be done, including him covering their sins. But this is exactly what it says in Isaiah 53. I want to go ahead and read this. um, To really hit home the idea that, that Yeshua becoming human teaches us what it means and how to live as a human. Okay, Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all. To fall on him. So, uh, he understands our pain and our struggles. And so, one of the things that's so powerful about what he did in his life, the miraculous birth, and everything he went through, is that he can relate to us, and we can relate to him. Shaul, Paul, even at times said that I desired, that I would participate in Yeshua's sufferings. To suffer the same way that Yeshua suffered. Because Yeshua set that example for us, and Paul even said, follow me as I follow the Messiah. In other words, do what I do that looks like the Messiah. If I set the example for you, then, then, then follow my example, as long as I'm following what Yeshua did. And, and so, what this really comes to for us talking about that He is God's Son, the miraculous birth, and how that's intimately tied to Him uh, covering our sins, it leads to then how how do we live our lives? I mean, these it, it seems like in a day-to-day basis this could be disconnected uh, because we're talking about some miracle. We have these holidays to talk about this miracle. And... It's a miracle, and all we talk about is the miracle. But the fact that he lived as a a man, uh, and the example that it sets for us here in Romans 8, I think it helps us to see what that means. So Romans 8, verse 1, it says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. For the law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has set you free from the law of sin and death, For what the Torah, the law, could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, through our flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he provided us the help the Spirit, so that we could walk as Yeshua walked, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. We talked about those hostilities earlier, how they had to attack that he was the Son of God. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself, to the Torah of God, to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So for us to have faith in Yeshua, to walk in his spirit, it allows us to fulfill his commands in righteousness the way he intended with the spirit's help. So, So we can walk as Yeshua walked. We can live as Yeshua lived. And if he hadn't come in the flesh... We might not know how that worked. We wouldn't have a good example. We as humans would be would would continue to be, like he said, the sheep without a shepherd, the sheep who have gone astray. We wouldn't know what else to do. Uh, and that's what's so incredible about him being born, about him coming to us, is that essentially the author and finisher of our faith is the same one who set the example for us around what that faith meant and how to live it. Uh, and so that's... That's why we have to hold on to these facts. Even if we don't understand them all the time, don't understand all the meaning and ramifications, we need to hold on to this idea. He came in the flesh. He came in the flesh. And he taught us how to live. He set the example for us. Um, So, uh, are the kids ready yet? I don't know. Okay. So they're working to go get the kids. Um... So maybe as a final note uh, at this time, um, going into Hanukkah, I think that uh, it's a good time for us to remember and rededicate ourselves to what God wanted us to do. Um, John wanted me to make sure to tell everybody, uh, Ruthie is still planning to do what her and Jim had agreed to do uh, before he passed. What they were going to do was during the Feast of Hanukkah, they wanted to rededicate themselves and do a mikvah, uh, baptism, to rededicate themselves to Yeshua. And Ruthie is still planning on doing that even though Jim is no longer with us. So we wanted to emphasize this because this isn't what we normally do. Normally we have the mikvah available whenever somebody wants to do a mikvah, but uh, always at like Yom Kippur for cleansing, things like that. Uh, so this is not a normal time, so we need to make sure people know. It's a time of dedication, right? Uh, Hanukkah is the rededication of the temple. And lo and behold, now, with Messiah and the Spirit, our bodies are the temple. So this is a chance uh, next Shabbat that the mikvah will be available. Anybody that wants to rededicate themselves, I would. Linda, do you, do you want to have people tell you beforehand? Okay, so please uh, let Linda know, John know, Annette. Uh, let somebody know that you're wanting to do that, uh, but it will be available. If you want to rededicate yourselves, you want to uh, go through the mikvah, uh, that will be available next Shabbat for Hanukkah. Okay? Uh, a few other announcements uh, before we.